the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Well, hello to rock fans all around this wonderful world of ours, and welcome to episode number 14, believe it or not, of the Enter Sad Men podcast. As you already know, we're the only rock and heavy metal show that reviews extensively and rates and ranks the best and occasionally not so great albums in uh, our wonderful world of, of rock and metal. And uh, we are now 14 steps into creating the definitive hard rock and heavy metal hall of fame. I'm here as usual with my wonderful friends, uh, Mark and Steve. Um, so yeah, we're now kicking off Crumbs, episode 14, gentlemen. Um, but before we announce uh, what uh, we are doing this week, we should probably talk about uh, what we did last time. And that was Wake Up With Makeup, where we decided on three albums uh, where there was just a little bit of eyeliner. <laughs> More than a little bit, wasn't it? Have you Have you managed to get on with King Diamond yet, Richard? <laughs> uh, no, no. <laughs> Since last time, I have I've uh, not gone back and listened to it. Uh, perhaps, perhaps I should give it one more try. I've been focusing on these albums now. Thank you very much. I've moved on. That was good. It was a good week, though. I thoroughly enjoyed it. it was, yeah, it was good. So, so, for, so, so for anyone who's not caught it, go back and listen. And the reason we bring up King Diamond is it, it was an evening that started with the Sublime with Kiss and Kiss. <laughs> it finished with the Sublime with Honey Rocks and Two Steps from the Move. And lodged in between was the uh, the fine Danish Satanist known as King Diamond with uh, his Merciful Fates debut album, Melissa. And man, he can hit some notes. And they weren't always great notes. And this week's even better, isn't it? This week, this week we answer the question that we posed in the questionnaire that we had to answer for the About Us section of the website, which was Maiden, Motley or Metallica? So that's what we're doing this week. That's what we're doing this week. And um, and we put a, a all of the dates into a, a – well, I say all the dates, but all the dates that were relevant into a randomizer, came up with one, obviously, randomly. And the idea was we picked one album from each band that was closest to that date. The randomizer came up with 1983, which means, Richard, we are talking about – We are talking about – Iron Maiden's Peace of Mind. We are then talking about Metallica's Kill 'em All. And then we are talking about Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil. So quite interesting, I think, also in terms of the um, where they'd got to. So there we go. Those are the three albums. Um, let's have a listen to what lies ahead. You'll take my life, but I'll take yours too. you fire your musket, but I'll run you through. So when you're waiting for the next attack, you better stand, there's no turning back. The bill was served, the times begins, but on this battlefield, no one wins. Go!
so there you go. That's what that's what we've got lined up. First up tonight um, is Iron Maiden's fourth studio album, released in May 1983. Peace of Mind. Mark, give us your thoughts. Opening album sleeve notes. So Iron Maiden's Peace of Mind. So here's it's a bit of context. I mean, I can't imagine there are, there are many people who who don't know the history of Iron Maiden. So. They arrive in 1980 with their self-titled debut album, having done quite a lot on the kind of London gig circuit before that number of EPs. At that time, Paul Diano was the lead singer, but this is very much Steve Harris's band. So they released the eponymous debut to critical acclaim. It's at the forefront of the new wave of British heavy metal. They followed that up with Killers, which was, I suppose, an inferior album musically but more interesting in all sorts of ways but the problems with their vocalist had already begun to become apparent there were all sorts of behavioral issues steve harris was particularly unhappy with the way that paul diano was approaching his career with the band harris had been absolutely adamant committed to the start that maiden were going to be the biggest thing on planet earth which ultimately of course they did become um but uh, things ran their course, as these things often do. They already had a replacement in Bruce Dickinson, who at the time was the lead singer with Samson, who were kind of, I suppose, chronologically their kind of peer group. And I remember buying, I mean, there was a huge amount of anticipation for The Number of the Beast, um, which was just several steps um, above and beyond what they'd achieved with the first two albums. But I think what's really interesting about Peace of Mind is that whereas The Number of the Beast was a huge album in all sorts of ways, it was huge for them commercially, it was huge for them reputationally, it was the album where you just went, okay, well, this is a band that really kind of knows what it's doing now. Peace of Mind, I think, is the album where they discovered their sound. This album sets the template everything that Maiden did beyond that. And I think in in that sense, this is the most important record they ever released to date. But what do you guys think? Yeah, of course, the other big thing that happened for this record was um, the arrival of Nico. Uh, um, and and I think, to your point, Mark, his drumming, whilst, whilst Clive Burr was, was, was great, there's something about Nico's style of, of drumming, his fills, his rolls, his galloping, just, just really defines what what this this band are about. And, they're, they're, and now, in, and and there's some just some fantastic examples of it. As I said earlier, I've, I've, I was going to say enormously indifferent. That would be wrong. I've always been somewhat indifferent about Iron Maiden, and I never quite. I was a, a latter day saint, as it were. I arrived at Maiden. Well, not till the 83, 84, something like that. I wasn't around musically at the uh, at the birth of the new wave of British heavy metal, or even when Dickinson left Samson and joined them. So they weren't really on my radar, and I never really therefore regarded myself. And there's something quite uh, – they've got a real hardcore fan base. We know that, haven't they? They're a massively – they're a, a quintessentially English metal band, and the whole of the English metal rock scene – kind of worships at their feet and have done for donkey's years. I mean, they're, they're, they're real stayers. But as I say, for, for no, no reason that I can honestly say, they just kind of 
passed me by <laughs> for many, many years. So, so coming back to this, uh, or coming to this pretty much for the first time, um, I'd have heard it before, but not for donkey's years. It's been brilliant. And, and just trying to assess it in the context that you mentioned earlier, Mark, it came after Number of the Beast, which was a truly ginormous album by any stretch with two massive top 10 singles. And, and I'm guessing that was Dickinson's first album with them, was it? Yeah. So the drums and... So I, I think this is I think this is a really really sensational piece of work. And I know Maiden fans, as I say, which I'm not. Maiden fans really really love this album, don't they? And I and I and I absolutely get why. There's so much good stuff on here. Yeah, it's been a real it's been a real treat listening to it. Really enjoyed it. So the way that we do this for anybody who's new to the podcast is that um, we listen to these albums as we're talking about them. So as we start this, um, we got Where Eagles Dare in our ears. This almost starts off with a um, un, in an unassuming way when you put it in the context of what comes next, not immediately next, but for the rest of the album. I don't think there's any hint here of, of what we're about to spend the next half an hour listening to. But I think the really interesting thing about this album all the way through it is it shows you what a private education can do lyrically, doesn't it? I can't imagine Paul Diano singing about Roman gladiators, Greek mythology, biblical references, epic novels. You know, this is Bruce Dickinson, and this is that's why I think this is the most important album they released because this absolutely sets out where they're going musically, where they're going lyrically, and they do not deviate from this in the next twenty years. We'll we'll come to this later. There are there are somewhere perhaps the lyrics aren't. Quite as sophisticated, but and 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 they'll be the ones written by Aris. <laughs> yeah. Ari definitely, you know, he's definitely got his fingers in the pie, but you can you can tell that they've that they have conceptually they've stepped up a gear from where they were with Number of the Beast. I mean, you know, Number of the Beast, they were talking about all sorts of kind of interesting stuff, but it was all fairly sort of standard heavy metal fare. You know, we got a bit more of Charlotte in The Number of the Beast, and she doesn't appear again for a while in their output. But this is a perfectly decent album opener, but I think it's dwarfed. I think think it's a great opener. As you say, given some of the the variation of of what's to come on this album, I I think it's a good choice. How do you you get on with Dickinson's voice then? Because that's always a bit... Is that not slightly Marmite? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, and I think probably that's why I've never been a massive, massive fan of Iron Maiden, because it's always right on the edge, isn't it, of of where he can go. But like we've said with so many of the albums that we've talked about over the last sort of four months, he's absolutely right for this band. Personally, I preferred vocally, in terms of style, I preferred Paul Diano. I thought, you know, that is also classic Iron Maiden. Um, but it's more accessible, I think. But I love, I love Bruce. I mean, yeah, I, I, I certainly the number of the beast was just a phenomenal album. Absolutely loved it. I just played it over and over and over and over again. So where Eagles Dare gives way to, I think I'm right in saying the only track on the album that is written entirely by Bruce Dickinson, Revelations. Yeah, that's right. And starts with a hymn. 
Well, it's, it's all, isn't it? That, I mean, it has a dual meaning, apparently. So part of it is essentially the musical sort of representation of, of the hymn, um, which was G.K. Chesterton, was it? That's right, yeah. But also it's uh, it's a nod to Alistair Crowley and Crowley's belief that, uh, well, Crowley thought he was the devil incarnate, didn't he? But he, he also believed that man's purpose on earth was to struggle with nature and uh, which Christians fundamentally obviously do not agree with. So there's there's kind of a there's a dual meaning apparently to to the song, but this I love I, I do I think it's got a, a, it's got a fantastic big finish, but I kind of think it's okay. It's, it, it wouldn't go down as one of my strongest tracks off the album, but you know, Shaka and Asongu was I dare say Bruce Dickinson said some lyrics somewhere, but <laughs> it's this it's this this kind of break in it, three breaks in it. Just fantastic, lovely, and and then into the signature gallop. Yeah, they do gallop, don't they? Yeah, it's what they do. But of course, they also managed to successfully gallop their way into the charts, which you know you'd expect with a Def Leppard. I would have thought for obvious reasons. You know, they looked chart material, didn't they? Maiden didn't. Which there's an awful lot about um, their fan base that they're that they're going to go out there and buy the singles and sh- shove them in the charts because no one else would have bought them. You know, my mum wouldn't have bought them. You know, they, they, they weren't for the pop, they weren't top of the pops material is what I'm saying. It, it, it would have been their fans alone that would have, uh, you know, hijacked the top ten. I really enjoyed properly listening to this song. Again, it, it, you need you need just to sit there, you need to just sit there and listen to this one. Yes, this is not wallpaper. You know, the tr- the trooper you can listen while you're doing other stuff. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and sing along. This this is, yeah. this is a this is a sit and listen. Completely agree. Flight of Icarus starts off with another signature maiden riff, and then uh, and then we go into a bit of Greek mythology, which um, which is back in 1983 was somewhere you didn't expect to go with Iron Maiden. I'd like I'd like this song, but what was really interesting about going back to this album and listening to that whole album in in its entirety is this has got you know, obviously a great sing along bit. It's got that great start in terms of the riff, but the rest of it is. Okay, I felt in the rest of the company it's keeping, it's it's at times a bit average. <laughs> this song, it's good, it's good. Don't get me wrong. You know, Flight of Icarus and I mean certainly the Trooper, maybe Dial Your Boots on. They'd be the pick out tracks that people would talk about. But going back, this isn't as good as Revelation. Well, uh, the interesting thing is that it was um, it was the first single off the album as well, which is given the the majesty of. Um, Run to the Hills and Number of the Beast, the, you know, the, the two singles that had been in the charts within the last 12 months. Strange call. I, I read a, I read a, an interview with Steve Harris who said he, 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 he wasn't a big fan of it on the record because he said whenever they did it live, they did it a fuck sight faster. And that's the pace he wished it had been put out on the, on, on the, on the record. He just thought it should have been faster. I mean, I think this is a great album. Front to back, great album. But it's, this track is, is very much mid-table for me. It's a an Iron Maiden standard song. If this was a different band, we'd probably be creaming ourselves over it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, brilliant live. I mean, the whole crowd go yeah you know, singing along. But it was just in- interesting, as you say. I think about some of the complexity and stuff that's on the on the rest of the album. So as Icarus plummets from the sky, screaming, we move into 
die with your boots on, <laughs> which is... Uh, it's better than the title. <laughs> yes. I actually really like this song. I love the chorus. I mean, I'm not so, not overly fussed about the rest of it, but I think the chorus is great. And this is, I mean, basically, I, I think the, the message of this song is there are always people who tell you the world's going to turn to fucking shit and you've got a choice. You can either live your life, you know, with all your heart or you can give up and roll over and die. Um, and I think uh, I kind of quite like the sentiment of it. One of my favourite lines um, in, in, in the album, which is a short one that just says, the Frenchman did surmise. <laughs> 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 okay. so, so i so, so i'm gonna i'm gonna set up four or five average songs on this album but their average is is, is actually very good <laughs> yeah it is isn't it that's, that's does that make sense yeah it does it completely makes sense it completely makes sense that's what i said if if the flight of icarus had been released by another band you'd be going, bloody, that's amazing. Mm, but yeah. because it's Iron Maiden and because they've set the bar so high with, well, with with all three of the albums that came before, regardless of what you think about Paul Diano, they were all high standard albums for the time that they were released. You know, we, we look at this and we go, yeah, it's average. It's yeah. average. Yeah. But, but actually, musically, hugely accomplished. You, you're never going to get bored listening to this album. It's just proper heavy metal, isn't it? I mean... If, if there's one observation of Iron Maiden that you can make, it's that they just define what heavy metal looks and sounds like. You know what I mean? If you could actually personify this genre, I'd, I'd say that, you know, for all the bands we love, Maiden would be that perfect representation. It's the look. Um, it's the name. It's the song title. It's the album covers. It's Eddie. Um, they, they look like rockers, they wear denim and leather, unashamedly wear denim and leather. Their fans all wear denim and leather. They are the perfect-looking metal band. They just sum it up. In, in a time capsule, 200 years from now, just put an <laughs> Iron Maiden album, and people was like, oh, that was what heavy metal was. Include one of those, the, the, the frequent pictures of them in Kerrang! was them all in a joint shower, soaking wet after yeah. a live. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just... With, with, with sweat wristbands on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, fantastic. But I th- tell you the other thing that I think is a, is a hallmark of this band is they've never ever abandoned what they set out to do. If you look at all of the big bands, all of them, you know, regardless who they are, eventually they release a St. Anger or they release a New Jersey or they release another slip of the tongue or whatever it might be that eventually they all want to become serious musos. And Iron Maiden are serious musos, but they've always been serious musos with with a style and a stamp and a sound that they've just, that is it. That You can pick up any Iron Maiden album, any time, released anywhere, with the possible exception of of the Dog's Breakfast that was Blaze Bailey. Um, yeah. And it will be exactly the same. You will get exactly the same experience. So, die with your boots on has given way to the trooper. Any battle, so long as it involves horses, Iron Maiden are that signature band. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> that that war was made for Iron Maiden. It really was. I, I tell you what, of, of all the the Maiden songs, I've only ever seen them sort of three or four times. But of all the songs that they do that takes you to them live, this is this is the one. 
probably because of that those opening few lyrics you know that when the you know 60,000 people if you're there when 60,000 people are with them are just you know belting out you take my life I'll take yours so it's a real sort of rat-a-tat crowd pleaser isn't it it's an absolute crowd pleaser yeah. and I don't think it's a great I don't think it's a great track but it's um brings the theatre out in them doesn't it I still love it it's one of my favourites I mean it, it, it's just classic classic maiden I mean the dual guitars with absolutely thundering bass uh, that was Cross-Eyed Mary wasn't indeed it? it was Jethro Tum yeah, yeah. She'll be on horseback, won't she? I mean, that's a given. Blinkered Mary. The other about the track for me, it, it, I mean, it's four minutes. It, it's, it's, it's perfectly packaged. And now we're on to side two of the album, and um, Nico McBrain's Backward Message. What Has anybody worked out what that is? What happens? It's just brilliant. Because <laughs> they were worried. It was their, their, their response, wasn't it, to those accusing them of uh, Satanism and, and everything else. So he's he's doing an impression of John Bird doing an impression of Idi Amin because the first sound because it's backwards that initial sound on the on the backwards masking a short story by someone called Ramsey Campbell in 1964 the inhabitant of the lake. This is my least favourite track on the album. I have to say, it's it's what? Sorry, Mark, it's your least favourite. Yeah, least favorite. I love it. I really like it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah I, I really like this. It was a real grower. Dickens's voice, the, the notes he hits in this, I really, really like. Still Life gives way to Quest for Fire, which, you know, for me, this is the point. If if the album sags, it's it's this track and the one that precedes it. They've reached the same literary heights as uh, as Dio and Biff Byford on this one, haven't they, with, um, you know, uh, dinosaurs and men around at the same time, it would appear. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah. And the immortal line, rubbing stick and stone. For me, I'd say this is the weakest track on the album. Yeah, no, sorry, I'm just reading some sort of crib notes on the fact it was inspired by French-Canadian director Jean-Jacques Anno's 1981 movie Quest for Fire, a cinematographic adaptation of the novel of the same name by J.H. Rosniane, published in 1909, equals bollocks. But there you go. So where does this sit, Sun and Steel? Where does this sit in your list? We're galloping again. I've got the same feeling as I had for, with Quest for Fire, I'm afraid. It's okay, but I, I think the, 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 this album, for, for me personally, the first half of this album is, is better than the second, and it, and it does fade a bit. See, I, quite, I quite like this. quite like it. I, I kind of like it. It's, got, it's catchy. It's got a bit earwormy. I've woken up many many mornings with this in my head great riff yeah i like it what you've woken up with this going around your head is that of late or generally throughout your life no of late oh right yeah it's quite gillen-esque gillen-esque yeah, it is. yeah i think so a little bit double trouble that sort of era it, it would be in the top half of the album for me but there you go so we come through sun and steel the tribute to the samurai to essentially a reworking of um, the novel Dune to Tamer Land. And this is kind of, we're now into what will become very much a sort of a signature of all Iron Maiden albums, aren't we? I mean, this is this is actually quite short as, a, as an epic finale, longer than I think um, Hallowed Be Thy Name was uh, on the previous album. But my God, they they go epic in increasing levels uh, after 1983. But this would be probably my second favourite 
album, uh, track on the album? I'm glad you feel the same way. I, I, I think this is an outstanding piece of work. That same interview I read with Steve Harris, he, he claims, I don't know when he said it, that this was the best song he ever wrote. Given there's a fair old canon of work in there, that's um, that's quite a boast, quite a boast. And I and I, and I get it. I, I I think it is an epic, an absolute epic. And interestingly, and I could be wrong because I'm taking this from Setlist FM, but they played this on the '83 tour, which obviously accompanied the album. And they've never played it according to the lists. They've never played it live since, which I think is a travesty. I wonder though whether that's true of all of their epic tracks because I doubt. yeah because i mean frankly if you start playing the rhyme of the ancient mariner that's your entire set gone yeah so is it just about is it just about song length i wonder yeah it's, it's beautifully loud there's so much going on i love um i've got to read you this quote from dickinson have you might have seen it on tour in on this tour in the 83 tour the crowd in stockholm because you were mentioning that the the track is named it's based on frank herbert's novel isn't it june one of those great science fiction epics. And Dickinson turned to the crowd in Stockholm, apparently, and said, next song is all about a gentleman who wrote a science fiction book called June. He's an American called Mr. Frank Herbert, this particular gentleman, all right? And Mr. Herbert, as it turns out, is a bit of a cunt, actually, because among other things, he said that if we called the track that we wrote on the album June, it'd sue us and stop the album coming out. I love Bruce Dickinson. (laughs) He's just fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is okay. It didn't. So it's just interesting how you guys really, really like it. But I wouldn't say this was a standout in terms of epic as as revelation, which does bring us nicely to highs and lows. So, Steve, start with you. Um, yeah, it's a tamer land for me. I love it, and I've got lows are harder to do because, as I say, it's this it's this um, three or four average songs that are very good. Um, I've got to pick one, haven't I? So, Quest for Fire. Rich? Yeah, Quest for Fire for me in terms of the, the one that doesn't reach the highs of the others. And then in, at the top, probably still just just for sheer enjoyment, the, the, the Trooper gets my vote. Still love listening to it. How would you score this album? Post your rating in the comments section of each episode guide at www.entersadmen.co.uk and we'll add it to the Listener Hall of Fame. So there you go. As Tamer Land reaches its conclusion, so do we with Iron Maiden's Peace of Mind, their fourth studio album from 1983, and the first of our trilogy from the same year. It's time now to close the door on Iron Maiden and open up the door on, for the first time in uh, 14 or 13 episodes, maybe the biggest band of them all, although not at this point, Metallica and Killamall. Opening album sleeve notes. So yes, uh, Killamall. I think recorded a similar time, and uh, but released yeah twenty fifth of July in in nineteen eighty three. So Metallica formed obviously by uh, Lars Ulrich, then with James Hetfield back in nineteen eighty one. So they'd had a few early bumps along the road. They obviously parted company just before Killamall came out with. Uh, dear old uh, Dave Mustaine, but it wasn't really until Ride the Lightning and then Master of Puppets that um, it really sort of received sort of, you know, widespread listening and, and all the, the critical acclaim. And I think I'm right in thinking that Kirk Hammett learned all of his guitar parts on the flight over to New York, didn't he, to the studio? 
Yeah, and he hardly wrote any of them, did he? No, and he was told, wasn't he, just to replicate what Mustaine had done. Yeah, pretty much, um, yeah. Which must have been particularly galling, although I think we do get a bit of his individuality on the album. Yeah, we do. I came to this the wrong way around as well. I, I heard Ride the Light, um, yeah, Ride the Lightning first, but you're flat in Hastings. So, yeah, loved Ride the Lightning, so that was astonishing. So And then came back to Killamore post-Ride, and it's just a very, very different piece of work, given how, given how you know close they are in terms of you know uh, proximity. Um, you know, very, very different, very, very different piece of work, very raw. And you know, with a spoiler alert, I mean, you, you you sent a message out on WhatsApp. You know, it's a top ten album. Bar dot dot dot. Um, you know, we'll come to the track that brings it down. All the, anyone who's heard it will know exactly what we mean, presumably, because it's um it's been a brilliant listen. <laughs> Do you know what? I, I having heard Ride the Lightning in '84, and then coming to this, I didn't. When I first heard this, I didn't much like it. There were a couple of tracks on it that I absolutely loved, did absolutely love, Seek and Destroy and Whiplash. But the rest of it, I kind of it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same as as Ride the Lightning. It was a completely different sound completely different tempo you know some of the tracks weren't but actually you know come ride the lightning for whom the bell tolls escape you know fade to black they had slowed everything right the fuck down hadn't they you know fight fire with fire and um creeping death it, were, uh, and trapped under ice were exceptions but this would all seem to be 100 miles an hour and actually it has been quite a long time since i've played the album all the way through and if I'm being absolutely honest, I was I had a slight feeling of trepidation when this album came up in the, on the randomizer, and you, and I just thought, okay, so for me this is possibly let's ignore anything they did after Reload because frankly it's mostly shit. But of all of their kind of stuff up to Reload, this is probably in my head the least favorite album that they've done. But with the benefit of all of those years and the benefit of a slightly more, you know, older, if not wiser head on my shoulders. You're absolutely right. This is just a great album all the way through. And I bet you've had a smile on your face all week listening to it, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think it sags a bit in places. You know, I think um, there are a couple of tracks where you go, okay, well, that's, you know, didn't quite get over the hill, but, but nothing that you go, oh, I didn't enjoy that. Uh, well, one, but, that yeah, we've already referenced. But, yeah, I think it's a great album. Had a ball listening to it. This is like no other album, is it? I mean, this, this in, in terms of, yeah, the, I mean, the production could have been better and so there, there, there's the odd saggy moment on it. But it's a debut album that says we're Metallica and we're going to change the face of music it is, a, is a pretty hefty opening statement. All of the base ingredients are there, aren't they, on this? Yeah, obviously, they get get more and more refined um, in, in in subsequent album. And the other thing for me is you can hear their influences in in this album. You can um, hear Diamond Head. You can hear Motorhead. This is where it all began. This is where the Colossus, that is now Metallica, uh, started out. So it's it's been great. I, I like all of the albums, but it's still my least favourite of their catalogue up to 1985. Sorry, 1995. But as a symbol of how the genre was about to change, absolutely so influential, so important. And so we begin with 
hit the lights. And I presume a start that where they wanted to, what, demonstrate some live credentials? But for me, which is fine, but I think they should have started with the riff. But it's great all the same. It's a brilliant, brilliant start. You're right, Ash. I've not quite analysed that, that. That is quite a curious choice of opener, isn't it? A little bit. Given what's just followed, it would have been better yeah. they started with the plectrum down the strings and yeah. bang straight into it. But it's a, it's a minor point. It's a very minor point because it, it, it's a brilliant track. It is a brilliant track, yeah. I mean, surely the first discussion point is James Hetfield's voice, isn't it? You know, just just to think, a calendar year later, and it, and it literally is a calendar year later, they released Ride the Lightning. And within that short time frame, and that is a relatively short time frame, the band had, you know, improved beyond recognition as a, as a songwriting unit, as a musical unit. But, you know, most notable of, of all, Hetfield as a vocalist has transformed beyond recognition, almost. You know, you listen to this, if, if you'd come to this after say, Master of Puppets, you'd think, well, who was the singer on the first album then? <laughs> That's right. This is a production issue, isn't it? This is a producer. I mean, A, this is a, an album that's recorded on an absolute budget. I think I'm right in saying that it was funded by somebody, the the label boss mortgaging their house uh, to get the money together. Didn't it? I can't remember the guy's name, but I'm sure he was quoted, wasn't he, as saying, this is, this is not money that I've got down the side of the sofa. So recording it on a budget with a, a rel- well an unknown producer because Fleming doesn't arrive until Ride the Lightning. And it's just somebody on the, the other side of the glass going, okay, James, let's just take that down a notch or two. Because if you listen to them live now, everything is slower anyway. Even Creeping Death is slower now live than it was on the album. So, And he's better for that, I think. He's he's struggling here in my head, in my ear. He's struggling to keep up with the riff. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not just your ear. What I would say is that um, I know, Richard, you, you're the ultimate arbiter in terms of production and if this band, had, if this album had been produced properly, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have half the charm that it's got, no. I think. I think I think it's rustiness. It's that youth club feel. It's almost what that's the statement. I think. I don't know. Can I just say, as as hit the lights moves into the four horsemen, talk about a statement here. Yeah, this is just phenomenal. I talk about these these seven minute tracks that you don't want to end, and I've, I've mentioned a few before. It, I could listen to this all night. Yes. Yeah. And the fact that they know that because there's two or three points they can pull out and they just don't, and they just keep going. And and how many, I, I, I meant to count and didn't, but I think there are about seven time changes in this. Yeah. Song. Yeah. Which is a sign of things to come because, you know, you, you question their, their songwriting ability in some of this. Well, not question it, just observe the fact that it's pretty primitive. But yeah, this is, this is a, a little, you know, vision of the future. Real complexity on here. I can really hear Diamond Head influences in this whole song. And I think quite a bit of Mustaine, the riffing that he's really, really famous for. And and, and also shows what a, you know, a good bassist Cliff was. You know, he didn't need to do, um, do an audition later on in the album. Yeah, this b- brilliant second track. 
Mustaine wrote it, didn't he? Or he brought a version of it with him, didn't he, from the band that he'd come from before? Onto Killing Is My... Yeah, and he took it onto Killing Is My Business, didn't he? Mm. Hepfield added bits in, didn't he? Because the shorter version... Well, the, the mechanics is basically the song, isn't it? And it's um, on Killing Is My Business. And I think it's on this track as well, and particularly now, the moment that we're we're listening to, where you you really do get an insight into where they're going to go. We look back, we go, oh yeah, okay. You can hear that in every album now. I mean, this 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 wouldn't be out of place on Master of Puppets. Is this the defining? Is, is this that that route that that actually thrash metal really did originate? I mean, because it's got all of the influences on it. And then there's just so much in this song that goes on, you know, Metallica, Megadeth. I mean, it's... Well, you listen to this, don't you? You just think... If if you're in a band in 1983 and you put the Four Horsemen on, you're listening to that going, well, fuck me, anything's possible now. Anything is possible. Or you just say, that's it, I'm going home. Yeah, or you do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? To do it, because, you know, if we presume that a thrash metal, and this, you know, they're not the pioneers of thrash metal, clearly. Um, I mean, you look at, you know, Anthrax have been around and Overkill and, you know, Motorhead, for God's sake, um, Venom. But to, to so early in the thrash genre, to be able to blend it into this shape, get it into this shape, um that's pretty impressive and, and you're right steve this could be going on in in march next year and i'd still be absolutely loving every every single note yeah yeah <laughs> just it's just phenomenal isn't it it's just a great great track so the obligatory, obligatory life on the road song yeah i mean track three uh, this is a trio of openers is is again in sort of setting out what they're about there's the there's the if the fist in your face have hit the lights. There's the complexity of the four horsemen, and then this is oh yeah, and we can all do also do things ridiculously fast. Yeah, and simply the first the first minute and a half of this, this is them saying yeah, punk fans, you can come and listen to us as well. You'll like us because this is this is pure punk, isn't it? It's just until until Hammett comes in with uh, an explosive solo, but yeah. The only song on the album where Lars Ulrich doesn't get a writing credit. I don't know what that says, but well, apart from the the bass bollocks, I, I don't know what that says. But um, yeah, he does a deserves a medal for drumming this fast, Crimson. Yeah. So then we're on to track number four, "Jump in the Fire." It's a good track. Um, I think they, they sort of hit a groove, hit hit a nice groove with this one. I, I I don't know what I haven't got much else to say about it, if I'm honest. As soon as I heard it, I, I thought Mustaine again. So on to the bass solo, take one. He did it in one take. Track five, Pulling Teeth. It fucking is. <laughs> I've got I've, I've one word on my notes for this, and it's the word why. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I love Cliff Burton. You know, I was gutted when he died. I, just, I, don't, under, I don't understand why this is here. See if you can spot the other one out. Call of Cthulhu, Orion, to live is to die, and anesthesia pulling teeth. That's that's the point, isn't it? Because they've got pedigree of really good instrumentals. Yeah, when you think Orion would be probably be in my 
certainly my top 10 Metallica tracks of all time. And the really sad thing is that this the album will pay the price for this when it come, when we get to market, because uh, we all know what happens if you're not consistent. True enough. True enough. It's not quite disgustipation, is it? But it's... Um... No. No, it will register a score, I think. <laughs> it's not going to be a high one. No. Yeah, well, let's say back to my original comment, why? Yeah. Four, four minutes of why. Is it? Yes. Well, four minutes? Yeah. But luckily, we know what's next. The moment it moves into the next one, you've forgotten about anesthesia pulling teeth. I don't know who decided this was the first single, but all hail them. All hail them. I get emotional just listening to this. It's my tennis racket moment. I just get so emotional. It's just... It's just I, I, in fact, I'm not even going to talk. We've lost Steve. So we're talking, um, uh, listeners, uh, about uh, a song you may know called Whiplash. Um, it's the final uh, track on uh, side one of Killamore. How many beats per minute is this? Well, well what's impressive about it, it is there, despite its speed, there is control. It really, yeah. It really, it's really is controlled violence. A song about headbanging shouldn't be this good. It absolutely shouldn't be. You know, it's just... Awesome. I said when um, when I re- when we reviewed um, we did our, our mosh pit night and I did we did flots I did flotsam and jetsam's Doomsday for the Deceiver and I said that you know Hammerhead the only track on that would be in my top ten all time tracks certainly top five all time thrash tracks and obviously depending on your mood and everything your 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 tracks change but this wouldn't there's three tracks that will always be in my top five there's Hammerhead. Lebanon by Mortal Sin and Whiplash, which is it will it will be I'll play it at my funeral. You know that's how much I love it. Be quite a send off. Genius, it's genius. So what is it that's genius about it? As as Richard alluded to, it's, it's not. It's it, anyone can do brutal to do it with that control and the drama of you know going into the coming out of the coming out of the, the into the solo and just the use of a lyric, just the use of a word. You know, it's just. It's just a priceless piece of music. It's just so simple, so far, so brutal, just perfection. So Whiplash gives way to the keyboard intro of Phantom Lord. I thought this had some similarities to Whiplash in terms of it, it's just some of the rhythms in it. Um, obviously slowed down a little, <laughs> only a little. You're going to hate me for this. I, I, I slightly prefer this to Whiplash. How is that possible? Explain yourself, man. You prefer it? Why? It, 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 there's a bit more, I think, complexity to it. it the sound is 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 broader and heavier. I mean, Whiplash is is, is sort of is is, is poking you in the face. Um, um, it, it, it's it's very fast but quite light. I find I I, I just find it just it's just got a, the whole thing's got a bigger sound, and I'd say this riff is relentless. It's one of my least favourite tracks on the album, I have to say. Interesting. Mm. I don't, I, if, if, for me, it feels like a poor relation to Whiplash. Yeah, I'd echo that. I do. I, I, again, it's a. There's nothing to dislike about the riff. You know, it, it it picks you up and smacks you around the face and puts you down again. But um, as it should. But yeah, no, it, it will. It will always be second fiddle. It's a but, you know, nothing wrong with it. It's a great track. I mean, I have to say, I do like the way it 
it goes into something sort of fade to blackish. Yeah. I'm not for your all-out speed, so I think that's why I prefer this. Yeah, I get that. And and because you're always looking for those little clues as to the, the Metallica that we come to, you know, love and love. So we've gone from Phantom Lord into um, No Remorse. Yeah, I was trying to think about the influences here. I mean, it almost started off a bit Judas Priesty. I use the word advisedly, but it's one of the more thoughtful tracks on the album, isn't it? It's more considered, less blistering. I don't, I don't have a huge amount to say about this track. It's a, it's sort of, it's it's mid table for me. If I were to be drawing up a lead table of tracks on this album, yeah, yeah, I'm there too. Yeah, um, perfectly good. It's the closest thing we get to a ballad, isn't it? Yeah, and it's and yeah, it's got some interesting stuff going on in it, but yeah. So here we are. It's just one of those riffs, isn't it? You'd actually just need to play two notes. And you'd know what it was. Not even four notes, two notes. As I said about the Trooper earlier, where that you know that, that transports you to an Iron Maiden show, this just transports me to Donington. This takes me to a Metallica show, and and you can just you can just feel the earth move as everyone moves with it. It's just a it's just such a such a chugging riff. It's just brilliant, brilliant piece of work. When this appears on Live Ship Binge and Purge, the kind of the live box set, I think it goes on for about 23 minutes, which frankly is about four days too short for me. <laughs> I absolutely adore this track. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's, it's incredible. Just the, the, I mean, you talk about control. It, it's pretty slow compared to the, 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 most of the rest of the stuff. But it's the pent up rage in it, mm. you know. It's 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 what bubbles underneath that does it for me. It's not it's not the overt kind of speed, although it does go into a into a you know very quick riff. But it's just it's just relentlessly sinister. Steve mentioned at the outset about the production, and you know we we discussed that it is you know, this is like a photograph of of this band at this time, and it yeah you know, would would better production uh spoil it i mean this this track's a classic example it's it, it has got a unique sound uh, so you can destroy it um but actually production on it is shit um the 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 base the bass is nowhere in the mix and 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 the guitar is quite thin but nevertheless it still comes out heavy Th- this recorded again with Modern production would just be huge, but it's still the best track on the album for me. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this was a no-brainer before we even before I even put the first before I even started to hit the lights. You know, it was a uh, this is only going to go one in one direction for me. You know, Steve gets teary over Whiplash, I get teary over Seek and Destroy. Mm. Quiz question for you, boys: Only two Metallica tracks have been played live more. Than seek and destroy, creeping death, mm-hmm. and second one's more of a surprise. Am I evil? No. Okay. I'd say belt holes or battery puppets. Uh, puppets, of course, puppets. Now this this just takes you somewhere, doesn't it? And it's just it's just the way they just drop back into that riff that just does me in every single time. 
And then we finish with Metal Militia. My feeling about this track, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a good finish. I mean, it's just brutal. I, I, I think my overriding takeaway from this album, though, is for all of the speed, for all of the, the accomplished togetherness that comes through all of that, they're still a better band when they slow it down. <laughs> Steve, would, <laughs> Steve would disagree. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I completely understand why. I love what they do and everything they've done up to Reload, obviously. And I love the variety and everything they do do. But uh, yeah, there's there's something there's something simple and old school and um, heartwarming about stuff like Metal Militia. It's a proper call to arms. Yeah, this 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 was why heavy metal was invented. As I sit here right now, listening to it again, I think you know this is this is one of their finest pieces of work. But that doesn't tell you an awful lot, does it? So you you can only take Killer Mall or Doomsday to a desert island. Doomsday. I've said that before because do what where this I, I do love speed as 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 you rightly say, but you know I also accept that there's more to an album than just speed. As much as I love it, I, I like to see it as part of a product, and therefore Doomsday um, is the more complete album. So we have reached the point in the album where we need to talk about highs and lows. I don't think there's any doubt where Steve and I have gone with highs, but we'll we'll just. For formality's sake, uh, cover that off. Well, let's let's start with you, Richard. Where, where where have you got to with highs and lows? Apart from pulling teeth, which is in a yeah. I think probably the the not so strong songs for me are probably probably Motorbirth Jumper in the Fire. I think, as I said, I, then there's some a collection of tracks that are all yeah just br- brilliantly up there for me. And I mean, hit the lights. Four Horsemen um, and Phantom Lord, but then Seek and Destroy is uh, just gets it by a nose for me. Okay, so I'll go next because uh, I think we're all we're all quite interested to know what Steve thinks about what's not necessarily floating his boat on this album. So my again, as you say, let's put aside uh, pulling teeth. I think out of a very very strong field. Metal Militia is probably the next up. Uh, and, yeah, for me, I'm with you, Richard. Seek and destroy every day of the week. So, Steve, we know where we know what sits at the apex of your triangle. What sits at the base? Well, we know what sits at the base as well, so we've got to ignore that one. Yeah, I don't know, no remorse probably, but there's not a lot in it. That would probably be the, the weakest of them all for me, but it's not weak, not weak in the slightest. How would you score this album? Post your rating in the comments section of each episode guide at www.entersadmen.co.uk and we'll add it to the Listener Hall of Fame. So there we go. That is Metallica's debut album, Kill Em All, from 1983. And, uh, yeah, time to move on. So let's uh, complete tonight's trio, Motley Crue's Second album, Shout at the Devil. Opening album sleeve notes. I have in my hand a gatefold sleeve, Shout at the Devil, September the 26th, 1983. It still looks as beautiful now as it did all those years ago when I bought it, which wasn't in 83. It was in 84, Christmas 84. I could just picture my mother going into the record shop and picking that out, along with um, Wasp's debut album. So, uh, yeah, that was quite that was quite a Christmas. 
And it was Mark who introduced me to Motley Crue. As you say, you, Mark, you'd bought it the year before, a year of a release. Is that right? Yep. Okay. And, um, yeah, you put it on. I'm sure you'd have put on Looks That Kill. Um, no, it wasn't. It was Bastard. Ah, was it? Okay. Yeah. It was that shock appeal, wasn't it? We were, you were yeah, at that yeah, stage. Yeah, 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 yeah. It explains fast as a shark as well, things like that. Yeah, I, I get it. But anyway, and I just, when I saw these boys, I mean, we knew about glam rock. We knew about pop stars, rock stars in makeup. But this just took it to a new level. And I wanted to be any of them. Well, perhaps not Mick Mars. I wanted to be the other three. But um, th- there was just something mesmeric, eye-catching, joyful about Motley Crue. They divide opinion, but then, you know, glam, sleaze, hair, metal, call it what you will, does split opinions. But, um, you know, I've just had an absolute blast revisiting this album this week. I've had so much fun because I don't play it enough. And, yeah, I've had a treat. Mark, have you enjoyed I know you've, you must have enjoyed it. Oh, it's been it's been wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And I would venture to suggest that this, ignore for a moment or or disregard for a moment where we might think it is in terms of musical accomplishment i think this is the most consistent album we've listened to in 14 weeks because i think every single track is an absolute is absolutely on the money for what that track is yeah we talk about consistency being the key to doing well in the hall of fame well you can be consistently shit frankly and you can be consistently brilliant um for me, this is consistently brilliant, but I think that's probably consistently brilliant because of where I – so much of this comes down to context and where you are in your life at the time. But um, this come, this all comes down to where I was at that time in, 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 in 1983. And I think one of the issues with Motley Crue is that they're really easy to take the piss out of. And, you know, Rolling Stone, who I loathe with an absolute passion for their – pretentious wankiness yeah they, 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 I, I think this 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 kind of sums up motley crew for me robert christigal who is possibly the most self-indulgent anally retentive reviewer i've ever come across was absolutely scathing about this album when it was released in 1983 absolutely scathing 12 months later it was voted number 44 in the 100 best heavy rock albums of all time so yeah, you know, on the one hand, it's really easy to dismiss them as kind of bubblegum pop, you know, pop rock, shock rock, whatever you want to call it. On the other hand, you go, they were really, really important culturally and influentially in the evolution of of that type of music at the time and that kind of West Coast sound, that kind of Hollywood, LA sound. So for me, it's bags and bags and bags of fun. Yeah, when you know the backstory and the bad behaviour and all the rest of it that went with it, that just kind of intoxicates it a little bit more and makes it even more hedonistic and appealing and and aspirational, I suppose, for somebody who's sort of like 18, 19 at the time. Yeah, I, I haven't have had an absolute ball, but I absolutely love this album and I always have. And I always will, and I don't care what Richard says. <laughs> so go on then, Richard. I I think Aside from the um, uh, the bass solo on the last album, actually we've had three pretty consistent albums tonight, and uh, I, I've I, yeah I've I've really enjoyed listening to it. 
what's interesting about this album, of course, is, yeah, it's nasty and it's a bit sleazy. It's not big. It's certainly not clever. It's a lot of fun, as we say, but it was also heavy. I mean, when they wanted to get heavy, they could get heavy. There's some riffs on here that, um, well, that, that, you know, that kicked ass. No two ways about it. They were, they were a really, really tight band. You're listening to the Enter Sad Men podcast. We're talking loud. So Shout at the Devil, yeah, as I say, 1983, September 83. And what uh, Crew's second album, um, Too Fast for Love being the, the opener, this was very much, um, as Mark said, Nicky Six's band. He was front and centre, born from the mem- remnants of a band called Sister, which um, was Six and Blackie Lawless. <laughs> Can you imagine? How toxic is that? Six did go on to, to perform in another band, but you're just drawn to that as for the, for the inspiration for this band, surely, um, because there was a whole lot of OTT theatre, special effects, all the satanic icons, which some of which have sort of transferred to this album. Cabaret, just pure cabaret. Um, and, and Six went on to do another band called London. That didn't last. Um, but it was the stuff with Sister that um, that he brought to Motley Crue and with Lawless's Blessing. And that's why we've got, you know, this 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 really theatric. The whole album, the, the cover, the, the music, it's theatric. And it starts theatrically within the beginning, this talk over, um, which is voiced by one of their engineers, apparently. And then it goes into their most played track live. How about that? Shout at the Devil, the title track. And it's quite the opener. Says it's stall out, doesn't it? Mm. Apparently it was going to be called Shout with the Devil originally. Yes. But there was enough. We've talked enough about the PMRC and 1983 and what was going on. And the, the, the suits at the record company said, yeah, bollocks to that. Let's just get rid of the weed. We've got to sell this bitch. Yeah. yeah. So shout, shout out the devil it become. Hey, we've got to sell this bitch. If you, listen, if you believe Nicky Six... His view is Electra through did nothing with this album. He says that the fact it was successful was all down to Motley Crue. Yeah, and I can hear him saying it. Mm. <laughs> Modesty ever its strong point. He's right though, um, and, it, and it shifted about two hundred thousand copies in the first couple of weeks or something. So um, whoever wove the magic, and it was probably was six, because if if you know anything about the crew in their latter life, they are super shrewd businessmen. <laughs> um, you know. That they know a thing or two about the industry. Um, so, yeah, there we go. Shout at the Devil, the opener, the title track, um, and it's a cracking way into the album. Yeah, it's a great opener. The, the other thing that hits you with this is the, is the production. This album's got such superb production. It's it's such a big, big sound, as well as being a great track. It, it it sets out the stall in terms of how good this album sounds. I mean, and, and, and they had this amazing sound from the beginning, didn't they? So the opening of Looks That Kill, and I don't know where you are, Steve, but it's February the 14th, 1986 in my head now, uh, at Hammersmith Odeon, which is uh, Looks That Kill opening the Theatre of Pain tour. Just, the, oh my God. I mean, <laughs> this is just my favourite track on the album. It just drives along so beautifully. Rather like you on our way to Hammersmith Odeon that very night when we look like a right cut. It's one of my abiding. This is this is the crew. This is what the crew does to you. It brings back some, well, some memories you'd probably rather forget. But that, no, we, we went to a crew gig, me and Mark, and we thought we'd dress for the occasion. We, we, we would have looks that kill. 
we just looked like a couple of twats. So we um, we raided Mark's mother's makeup joint. We bought a lot of bangles. I bought a lot of bangles from Slough Market, took them up. So I had an arm full of silver, or fake silver. Um, we put on all sorts. We went to the market and bought a load of ribbons and taffeta and rubbish. And, and, as we, and as we jumped in the car, I just thought, please, God, we've got enough petrol to get to Hammersmith Odeon. And lo, guess what happened? That's right, we didn't. So we had to stop at a petrol station. And um, I said, you're getting out. And you said, you're, you're getting out. And I said, no, you're getting out. <laughs> oh, happy days. <laughs> to see Motley Crue perform Looks That Kill, why wouldn't you? It's just a brilliant track, but just such a such a great song. Yeah, they they've thrown the kitchen sink into this song, and like two main riffs, that both of which are just absolutely brilliant. Mick Mars, I think, writes the dirtiest guitar riffs in the world. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Yeah, and Tommy Lee's drumming, and I was slightly hurt by the underwhelmed look on your face. <laughs> <laughs> Proudly makes it onto the PMRC's Filthy 15, by the way. That's such a that's such a mean guitar riff through the chorus, isn't it? Just brilliant. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, if you're a young, if you're a relatively young band, you want to be on the Filthy 15, don't you? Parental advisory uh, explicit lyrics was um, a, a positive plus and a badge of honour. If I had that sticky, you wanted it, didn't you? I mean, this track for me, it, it's uh, it's good. It's fine. Not as good as a, a lot of the other company it's keeping on this album. So side one finishes with, um, well, first of all, there's an instrumental, God Bless the Children of the Beast, um, which doesn't merit mention because it just doesn't. Um, and then we sign off with Helter Skelter, the obligatory Beatles cover that so many rock bands seem to feel the need to have to do. Um, luckily, it's Motley Crue, so they do it brilliantly. Nicky Sips described the Beatles as fucking wimpy. Didn't stop him doing a cover. Also counts the White Album as one of his favourite albums of all yes, time. Mike. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess his point is actually you can really heavy their tracks up, can't you? It, it's a good cover. They've dirted up that riff. Yeah. So yeah, it's good. Yeah. It's not Megadeth's boots. So side two kicks off with. I suppose, the fastest track on the album. I mean, to be honest, this is an album that I think is the second side is better than the first side, if that's mm-hmm. all possible. So Red Hot is just relentless. You get on for the ride, and it's a hell of a ride, Red Hot. You know, Yes, again, we've got a vocalist who splits opinion, Vince Neil. I don't think on any scale we could ever accuse him of being a virtuoso singer. But yet again, absolutely right for this band. And we've seen him. We've seen him struggle live, haven't we? Remember it? Was it not? Was it Wembley? Wembley, yeah, Wembley. yeah, 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 yeah. Admittedly, he wasn't at a good time in his life. But then, uh, you know, he quite often hasn't been. Though you're right, it's per- there's so many bands like this. You know, LA Guns, Faster Pussycat. You know, they're, they're, they're just the vocalist is almost it's, the look comes first, and the rest follows. He can sing. He can sing. Michael Monroe, you know, th- th- he can sing. That's all it is. It's nothing great. Um, right for the band, yeah. This is a ride on a fast roller coaster, this song. But it's the, it's just the sheer consistency. This is just, there's a, there's like a, a level line running through the whole of this album and they don't go below it and they don't rise far above it, but they're right on it all the time. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a band at the, at the height of their powers so early in their career. And then we bring it down a notch nicely, but just priceless. Too young to fall in love. You just you just move as soon as it starts. You just want to move with it. It just another driving track that picks up and it, it picks you up. And interestingly, the, 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 is there a weak link in Motley Crue? If there is, it's Mick Mars um, because he is what he is. But he comes to the party in this track. What I think about this track is it's of its time and yet timeless because this is. If you want to define 1983, 1984 in hard rock and heavy metal and particularly in glam, this is it. This is this is the poster song for where this music was at that time. But you have to do it right. You have to do it well. And they've done it. They've done it brilliantly, beautifully. You know, Nicky Six says it's his favourite ever song. Is, does he really? I've not yeah. read that. He does. Yeah. In one of his many biographies. There's a lovely groove about this song. They weren't afraid to use the extra percussion, were they, in terms of... I I think a lot of that is down to Tom Werman as well. Tom Werman, 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 however you pronounce it. Yeah, they've got a master producer working with them. The harmonies on this song, perfect. Yeah, they're not complicated. They're not, you know, they're not operatic or symphonic. They're just right for the song. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is, an, which is an observation you make about so many of the songs, aren't there? That, that they just got it right. They just they've got the right feel for each song every time, you know. Well, it's interesting what you say earlier, Steve, about um, about McMars, because like that, the, the riff made that song. Mm. Yeah, there's his riffs are so simple, but they are incredibly yeah. effective and just just right, you know. Mick Mars is never going to be anybody's favourite ever guitarist, you know, on his own. But in that band, absolutely vital to how they sounded. And so to Knock'em Dead Kid, which is uh, on the album sleeve, is cheekily dedicated to the LAPD. So this follows a run-in that Nicky Six had with what he thought was a bunch of bikers, but turned out to be <laughs> a bunch of undercover cops. Uh, one of whom he, he he managed to smack across the face with a chain he was wearing as a belt at the time. And, I, and the, the bit of this that makes me laugh is what those cops must have thought being confronted by Nicky Six with the hair and, you know, and, and, and that look. And Lita Ford on his arm, which is, which is proper hard rock, proper thumping hard rock. You, what, what you can't, what you can't do with Mark, you cannot, quantify anything this band did in the 80s and try and put a modern try and explain it away now because that just makes you look so uncool because they just, they broke every they broke every rule in the book everything they've done they're, they're just a cliche now aren't they they're cool to hate you know and and for all the wrong reasons because of what they were at the time the things they did the stunts they pulled now you have to apologize for liking them i'll never do that you know just because just because you know, the drink, the drugs, the drinking your own piss, the and the oral sex everywhere. Yeah, the whole thing. Just it was just public shows of debauchery. But you know, I'm slightly jealous, <laughs> if I'm honest. Not slightly, not slightly jealous. <laughs> and I've got no shame about that at all. 
And I'll tell anyone. There aren't many sloppy seconds. No, not many people's sloppy seconds I'd have had, but any one of theirs, frankly. Oh, dear. Talking of sloppy seconds, we move on to 10 seconds to love. See if you can guess what it's about. Touch my gun, but don't pull my trigger. Let's make history in the elevator. I mean, I could run through it all, but I won't. <laughs> yeah. Reach down low, slide it in real slow. I want to hear you roar. My gun's still warm. Yeah. Oh, dear. I'm just, I'm just slightly disappointed that he was only 10 seconds. Because, frankly, even I can beat that. Yeah. I, I think this is quite heartening. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it makes, makes me think differently of myself. Yeah. It's sleazy. It's certainly sleazy. I felt this had quite a bit of kiss in it in terms of because obviously they, they, they crossed paths with Kiss didn't they and uh, I it, this this could be a Kiss song mm. <laughs> including the lyrics <laughs> yeah, yeah Kiss they fell out with Kiss didn't they Kiss re- Kiss accused them of being just too wild how <laughs> wild is too wild we've made it guys we've made it Kiss think we're over the top <laughs> this is their over the top love gun they must have thought actually yeah Lyrics in Love Gun are a bit too subtle. A, a year after this album was released, or a little over a year after this album was released, I, I find this quite prophetic. This could almost be dedicated to Razzle, couldn't it? Mm. Yeah, so within a year of this, for those who don't know, Vince Neil was driving a car with Razzle, the drummer of Hanoi Rocks, somewhere in LA. Car crash, one of them died, obviously one of them didn't. And, yeah, desperately sad story. Neil was pissed wound up doing time, and Hanoi Rocks were effectively no more. Um, yeah, it was a desperately sad story. And this, and I'm with you, this song always just, you know, makes you think, gets you thinking of that. But it's a, such a good song. It is a good and song. So it shows you what they, what they could do when they just dialed it back. Yeah. I mean, it does, it does sound like a Hanoi Rocks song. Mm. This, this could have sat on Two Steps from the Moon. But that shouldn't be a great surprise, should it, given that I wouldn't say, you know, the Rocks begat the crew, but, um, you know, they were clearly a massive influence on a lot of bands, the Rocks, including Motley Crew. I remember in the same session where I played You Bastard all those years ago, this came on, and I remember, I, I, I can even remember where we were sitting in the flat, and you went, well, if you paid me this to begin with... I bet. I would. I, I fell in love with this straight away. It's a brilliantly crafted song. It's an interesting sign off to the album, actually. But well, it's it's it's, it's shout at the devil's home sweet home, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is my town. This is Hollywood. It's a real statement. And from a band that more or less owned Hollywood. Yeah, at that point. Absolutely. And and there were, and if and if if you doubted it, we're saying it right here, right now. Brilliant. Well, I've enjoyed talking about it as much as I've listened to it. We need to do some highs and lows, boys. It is the cover for me as the the lower point. El Skelter and Looks That Kill is my high. Steve? I- identical. Yeah, I agree on both. I mean, I've got plenty of highs, which is pretty much everything other than Helter Skelter, which is, yeah, is a, is a perfectly solid um, cover. But, yeah, I'm... I'm Looks that kill as well. So I'm with you on looks that kill, but I think I think just because Helter Skelter was quite an interesting take on a Beatles song, 
for me, bastard sits at the bottom. But, I mean, the bottom is a long way up. How would you score this album? Post your rating in the comments section of each episode guide at www.entersadmen.co.uk and we'll add it to the Listener Hall of Fame. So that completes our listen back to um, uh, the three albums from this episode in which we sought to at least part answer the question that we were asked in the questionnaire for the website on whether our preference was Motley, Maiden or Metallica. Um, And I say in part because we've got nowhere near listening to uh, the back catalogues of uh, the entire back catalogues of these bands, so um, it's uh, it's going to be an answer that's given in you know thirty eight parts or whatever. But might as well do part one now and rank the three albums as we are contractually obliged to do. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Right. So done and dusted. The three R's in Enter Sad Men lingo are to review, rate, and rank. We've done the reviews. Had great pleasure reviewing. Um, Iron Maiden's Peace of Mind, Metallica's Kill Em All, and Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil. Um, and now we have rated them as well to find out where they will be ranked in the Hall of Fame that we are assembling. So first up, Mark was um, Iron Maiden's Peace of Mind. Do you want to talk us through the scores? Uh, yes. Okay, so um, this was Iron Maiden's fourth album, the one that probably arguably set the template for the band moving forward and ever since and the scores were as follows um steve you gave it overall a seven point well all the ones seven point one 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 uh richard you gave it seven point all the twos and i marked it slightly higher at seven point three triple six seven, which means we we pretty much agreed actually on the quality overall, uh, and it came out with an overall average score, uh, which we get by adding our album scores together and the divided by three. So it came out with an average album score of seven point two three recurring seven seven point two three. Yeah, that's no, interesting stuff. Um, so yeah, second album was uh, Kill 'Em All, um, Metallica. Richard, do you want to uh, go through the numbers on that one? Yeah, so Steve, you uh, were out front in our scores very a bit more on this one than uh, than I made, and you you gave Kill 'Em All overall an eight. Um, uh, Mark gave it a seven point four eight, and I gave it a seven point two. But as it stands, um, the, the, those eight seven point four eight and a seven point two give it an average score of seven point five six. So even with the uh, abysmal track five, um, it still gets a, a higher score than, um, than Iron Maiden's Peace of Mind tonight. So that's, that's uh, Metallica's Kill 'em All. Uh, and the final track that we reviewed in this episode was, of course, Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil. And um, Steve, I'm going to give you the honour of, of taking us through the scores for that. And an honour it is. Yeah, so Rich, were, Rich was a slightly more lukewarm, but a very high score indeed, 7.5. Um, I thought I'd struggle to be pipped with 8.05, but I was. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, Mark, I know you're a huge fan. You gave it 8.3. Good scores. The, 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 the total overall score is 7.95. So just failing to break through the magical eight barrier. So now we know what the scores are. We need to find out where they are in the fabled Hall of Fame. Shall we head over? It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. 
starting then with Peace of Mind and Iron Maiden, the lowest scoring album, not not, not a low score, but the, the lowest of these three tonight. Uh, that comes in equaling uh, Leonard Skinner's debut album with its score of 7.23 recurring. So 34th equal um, in the Hall of Fame for Peace of Mind. Then Kill em All's, uh, Kill em All by Metallica, just fails to break into the top 20 with its 7.56. Uh, so they're at uh, 21st, just a tiny bit below Aria Speedwagon's high infidelity. Uh, but inter- interestingly, between uh, the three of us, it just nudges above Flotsam and Jetsam's Doomsday for the Deceiver. If um, we hadn't had that awful bass track, then uh, Kill 'Em All would be sitting pretty nicely, I think, in the mid-teens. Uh, Actually, if we if we hadn't if we'd all scored it at a seven, then uh, it would have been sitting at number twelve. Twelve, my goodness, right? Um, which, interestingly, is where Molly Crew is sitting. Uh, so shout the devil, uh, and it's a seven point nine five and a bit um, has nestled its way in between. UFOs, Strangers in the Night at 13, and Black Sabbath's Heaven and Hell at 11. Yeah, I think um, that, that the Metallica one is the interesting one, down in 21st, which is plumbing depths, isn't it, for uh, for a band like that? And I'm, I'm now fast-forwarding mentally to what are we going to do? We're going to go up to reload, presumably. Um, and I'm thinking this is, this is probably that, that one track has condemned Kill 'Em All to, I think, will be their lowest score. I'm looking at Unjustice for All and Reload as the possible contenders for those sort of places. Forget the rest, Ride the Lightning, top 10, Master of Puppets, top 10, Low, top 10, Metallica, top 10. So one track <laughs> is its undoing. Yeah. Which is what we said right at the beginning of the show, wasn't it? That that, that one track, they would pay for it mm. uh, in, the, you know, in the in the final reckoning. And and um, and they have. I think. I think the the biggest surprise for me is how low down peace of mind came, given how much we all enjoyed it. Yeah, it had a few sort of six ish scores for a few tracks. And yeah, I suppose it, it it didn't have. I mean, it was it, as you said, it's a it's a very very consistent album, but it didn't have any of the real high highs that the other two albums had tonight. No, that's true. That is true. Yeah, um, it might be worth just uh, just for the sake of um, of uh, governance, um, top ten, uh, just to run through those. So ten out of the cellar, Rat. Nine, British Steel, Judas Priest. Eight, Women and Children First, Van Halen. Seven, Let There Be Rock, ACDC, which would have been at number three or even two, I think, um, had it not been for Crabstein and Blue. If we'd been uh, if we'd been reviewing the the international version rather than the Australian release, uh, at six, moving pictures, rush five is escape journey, four, thunder and lightning, thin lizzy, and the top three, the fabled three, three, lightning to the nature nations, diamond head, two, machine head, deep purple, and one, Led Zeppelin four, both of which have now been there for ten full episodes. Will anyone ever? scale those dizzy heights stay tuned to find out which brings us on to uh next week doesn't it what yeah. are we uh, up to next week so next week we decided 
that we would look at it was album covers wasn't it we thought we were sold we were sold on these albums by their covers so we have called it it's mark mark it's just an inspirational name sheer art attack i get it just brilliant just brilliant so sheer art attack it is so uh, yeah so we've chosen three albums where where we were hooked or some interest something enticing beguiling enchanting or just downright interesting about the album cover those are the three albums we know what they are you can find out all about it when you join us next time will this be the point at which the scorpions love drive that every self-respecting rocker bought on the basis of the album cover will this be the scorpions time to make an appearance you'll have to tune in next time to find out all music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.